verse 14. It's a funny old book, Ephesians, but we'll have a look at that later. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then does something different, breaks into his own sentence. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, I became a servant of this gospel, this good news, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of the sufferings for you, which are your glory. And you'll see in verse 14, he starts again, uh, for this reason. <laughs> and then you get the sentence that he was originally going to give you. So this is one of the longest parentheses in the whole of Scripture. It's kind of like what I tend to do. You've got to be careful when you're preaching. If suddenly, you know, in the middle of what you've prepared, you get the idea, there's a great story I could tell here. And you start telling the story. And you get so involved, you forget where you were. And you've got to work back to where, where you started from. And um, it's almost as if, it, I say almost, I'll explain why in a moment, but it's almost as if that's what Paul is doing here. He's starting off to say something, and then he thinks of something else, and you get this tremendous uh, interjection in the middle before he gets back on track, which is where we will be next week. Let's uh, look again at Ephesus. I talked to you about uh, Ephesus when I, uh, we did the first one in this series, and that's what the city must have looked like in ancient days. One of the things about the Apostle Paul was he was always a very strategic character. He understood the map. Wherever you look in the book of Acts, you find that you, it's the local names that are used for places. Uh, Luke has obviously learned from Paul an awful lot about different cities and how they all fit together. And you can imagine that Paul, growing up as he did in Tarsus, which was a Roman city, a place that people came and went from all the time, a seaside city, in which he was always talking to sailors because, let's face it, as a tent-making family, Paul and his... his, his uh, um, relatives must have had a lot to do with sailors who needed sails for their boats and uh, travellers who needed tents that they could sleep in the road. And so he, was, he had a very geographical kind of mind. You find that it goes uh, into the way that he strategizes his mission as well. When you look around the map, as we have done quite a bit through Acts, looking at the places that he went to, you find that it tends to be, in each case, one city in a region a city from which the gospel can spread out throughout the whole of the surrounding region. And um, 
Uh, clearly, he didn't have time to go to all the little towns and places. He often bypasses places where you think, oh, he could have started a church there. And he goes on somewhere completely different because he knows he hasn't got long. And all he's trying to do is spread the knowledge of the gospel so that from one center, it can percolate out into all of the countryside round about. And that, of course, was what was happening in Ephesus because Ephesus was the center for all sorts of little villages and market towns uh, around. And people in that whole area would hear the gospel if only it started in Ephesus. And so it what happened. Colossae, Hierapolis, um, Laodicea, all sorts of places within reach of Ephesus got the gospel from there. And right over that area of modern-day Turkey, the church flourished while Paul was free to go somewhere else and do something different. And um, that was probably why he wrote this letter to the Ephesians in the first place. Because as we said at the start, this is not a letter just to one church. In fact, all the best manuscripts you've got don't have the words to the saints in Ephesus. The words in Ephesus were probably added by some scribe in the 5th century, not trying to change the Bible, but just to put in a little note to say, well, this is actually something to do with Ephesus, this letter. There are no personal greetings to people. It's not moored in one congregation, and it seems to be a circular letter that he wrote that would go all around the area of Ephesus. I think having done that for Ephesus... And having seen the effect of sending one letter out, which said in local terms what the gospel was all about, he then went off to Corinth and did the same with Rome. <laughs> because Rome and Ephesus were the two great cities of the Roman Empire. In fact, uh, about 300 years after Paul lived, um, the, the capital of the Roman Empire moved from Rome across to Istanbul because it was a much more strategic place. And so Byzantium, or Constantinople, as Constantine, the emperor, uh, modestly called it, um, became the real center of, of life across there. But in Paul's day, Ephesus, as a trading city in the east, was an important place to reach. And Ephesians is written in a style that we spoke about as well as epidictic rhetoric, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Roman, on the other hand, is very argumentative, very western, full of little questions, as we'll see, that Paul asks himself and then answers. Lots of places where he says, some might say this, but I would say that. And he keeps on running a, a real logical argument right through his 16 chapters. That's why it's so much longer than Ephesians. And so having done something for Ephesians, which was written in the rhetorical style of people in that part of the world, I think he now goes across to Corinth and writes Romans, because that covers the other half as well. So in the whole of the New Testament, Romans is clearly, as we were saying this morning, the big one. It really is. But Ephesians is the second, if you like, for the eastern part of the empire rather than the western part of the empire. And uh, what he's doing in Ephesians, uh, well, we had a look at what, uh, the outline of it, and uh, you've had other talks on the subject since, but this is the way I started it anyway, if you remember. We said that the first half of the book is about doctrine, and it talks about being in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The second half is all about practice, and chapter 4 starts, okay, uh, to Jesus be glory in the church. Now, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling wherewith you have been called. And the word calling and the word for church are very close together. In, church, in, in Greek, the word church is ecclesia, those who have been called out. The word for calling, with which he starts off chapter 4, is ecclesis. Ecclesia, ecclesis. And that play on layers, well, Michael Griffith says it's as if he's moving on from talking about what the church is and what the church can be and what God it, it dreams of the church being to say, okay, now I want you to live a life worthy of the churching wherewith you have been churched. 
And that's what holds the two halves of the thing together. So you've got doctrine in the first half, then the practical, this worldly, how we live out, out now in the second half. And he said, there are three words, I won't go into this in any depth at the moment, but sit, walk, and stand that sum up the sorts of things he's doing. Sitting in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. That's what the whole of this first half is about. And the second half is about walking, the, the walk that God intends us to walk, and finally, standing firm, using all the spiritual armor that God gives you to stand against all the wiles of the devil. So that second half we're not concerned with, but basically we said the first three chapters are, first of all, about what God has, has done for us. The second chapter is where we are now, as the church, the middle wall of partition being broken down between the Jews and the Gentiles. We're all part of one fantastic new family. And the third chapter is about where we go from here. How do we live this out? What he really wants to do in chapter three is finish that sentence that he starts in verse one, which is to say, um, I'm praying these things for you. But before he gets to sit praying that prayer, you get this same kind of interjection. So, yeah, we'll, we won't worry about that too much. Let's just look at the interjection, because that's the important thing for, for the moment. If you look back into chapter 2, what leads up to that for this reason bit is, is basically uh, what he's been saying about the church. The, the wall has been broken down between the Jews and the Gentiles. We're all marvelously connected in an amazing way. God's ancestral people, the Jews, and all of the other nations, the Gentiles, and they all come into God's family in the same way through faith in Jesus. Fantastic. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, he said at the end of chapter 2. But you people, you are fellow citizens of God's people, a dwelling in which God lives by this spirit. And for this reason, he then starts his big sentence. And uh, clearly, you can work out from that verse, can't you, that most of the people he's talking to are not Jewish. <laughs> so it's not like the Roman situation that we were talking about this morning. We said this morning, if you were there, that um, the, 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 the trouble in Rome was probably that. The Jews had all been expelled from Rome six years before Paul wrote, and they were just starting to come back now. And uh, as they came back into Rome, they found that the church in Rome had taken a very different shape from what they remembered when they were thrown out. Because it had a Jewish leadership in those days. They had, mainly Jews had, had been inspiring and moving the church forward. And they'd all been thrown out by the Emperor Claudius. So the Gentiles, the other nations, had to take over and run the church. And as the Jews came back, they kind of found, this is not our church anymore. This is a Greek, Roman, Italian, European church. And there was a bit of friction possibly starting between the Jews and the, 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 the other races in the church in Rome. But in Ephesus, there weren't too many Jews around. Do you remember, right from the start of the church, Paul had been uh, uh, thrown out of the synagogue, and those early Jewish believers went with him, and he hired the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Do you remember? And for two years, he was lecturing there, until over two years, he'd done 3,000 hours of gospel argument. <laughs> That's a lot of talking to people who weren't Jewish. Because the Jews were in the synagogue by and large. They weren't allowed to go anywhere else. The people who came to the lecture hall were the people who were used to uh, coming to lectures. And, and most of them were, were, were uh, not Jewish. They were, they were Gentile. And they'd go and listen to all sorts of speakers. And when they heard Paul present the gospel, and they believed it, and joined the church, they formed a church that was pretty largely Gentile. So you did have a few Jews in the church in Ephesus, but by far the majority of people were Gentiles. And when the gospel spread out from Ephesus into those other places we spoke about, Colossae and, uh, and uh, Laodicea and places like that, well, there were some Jews in those towns, but they probably weren't going to listen because of what had happened in Ephesus. 
And it was mainly amongst the Gentiles that people started becoming Christians. So if Ephesians was a circular letter that went out all of those places, it was written largely to people who did not belong as Jews. So anyway, that's the way it ends at the, at the end of chapter 2. And then at the end of our section tonight, it starts again. For this reason, I kneel before the Father and pray. And in the middle, you've got those funny verses that we read. And what Paul seems to be saying is, uh, you guys, you do know who I am, right? <laughs> and uh, you can say, surely you've heard, haven't you, of the uh, 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 administration uh, of God's grace that was given to me for you. Uh, if you read this, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And you can see he's writing to people who haven't necessarily met him. They've heard a lot about him. Some of them will have been converted through his ministry. Others will be his spiritual grandchildren or great-grandchildren, if you like, because they've come into new life through people who were his converts in the first place. And so he's writing to a bunch of people who may not know exactly who the Apostle Paul is and what he's all about. So why is he doing this, is the question. Um, uh, I think there are three possibilities what, uh, in terms of what's going on here. What's, what's going on on that thing? Go away. Come on, sorry. That shouldn't be there on your left-hand side, but never mind. That's what comes to doing your PowerPoint too late at night. Okay, so what's going on here? Uh, the first possibility is, has Paul just forgotten to say this before? You know, it's just a clumsy kind of interjection in letter because he started out on chapter three. So, okay, for this reason, uh, I want to pray for you. Oh, oh, scrub that, scrub that. I've got something else to say. And so he sticks that in the middle before he gets onto his real subject. No, I don't think Paul was making up Ephesians as he went along. If you remember, we said uh, back at the start that this is an example of epideictic rhetoric. Ben Witherington III, that's a great American name, isn't it? Ben Witherington III, one of the best New Testament scholars of our day, uh, has written this, this commentary about Ephesians, uh, and as well as uh, Philemon, Colossians, and it's a socio-rhetorical commentary on, on these letters. Uh, what that means is he's trying to show how Paul is using the kind of rhetoric, the kind of ways of writing speeches that was popular in Ephesus and that kind of part of the world, popular amongst pagans, not amongst Christians to write something which would put the gospel in the most enthusiastic terms possible in language that they, they liked. Romans is so different because it's a Western book, but Ephesians is really aimed at a, 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 an audience in that part of the world. And so he planned it pretty carefully. And uh, you'll find that through Ephesians, there's not a word out of place. Lots of sentences that are very carefully polished. Fantastic poetry. All kinds of pictures coming up. And I think he thought about everything in Ephesians very carefully. So I think, starting off the sentence and ending, whoa, wait a minute, I've got 13 other pieces before we get to that. And then coming back to the sentence again. I think that was very, very deliberate. <laughs> it was because he wanted people to pay attention. Why on earth has he interrupted his own sentence? Why doesn't he get on with it? What's happening here? He wants them to focus on these words because they tell them something about who he is. Second theory you might have about this is that Paul's trying to big himself up here. All these people might not listen to me because many of them don't know who I am, so I'd better give them my credentials. Let's tell them a bit about myself. I'm an apostle, you know. I was given this message by revelation from God, and I'm important, so you better listen to me. Yes, you have. No, that's not the tone of it, though, is it? When you look at what happens in those 13 verses, he's not making great claims for himself. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. He invents a funny Greek word for less than the least, which is logically impossible if you think about it. But uh, he invents that word, which doesn't exist in, in Greek. Say, I'm less than anybody who's got into God's kingdom before. Um, this grace nonetheless has been given me. 
It's not about me. It's about what God has done through me. That's the important thing. And he talks about his sufferings. Do not be discouraged because of my sufferings. He doesn't, doesn't want to uh, th them to think everything is success. You, know, you read some uh, prayer letters or newsletters from some uh, Christian agencies or evangelistic uh, uh, outreaches and things like that, and it sounds as like if everything is fantastic and triumphant and the world is being conquered and uh, all of this just needs your money, so the banker's orders form needs to be filled in and sent back to me now because God is doing miracles through our ministry. Well, Paul believed that God was doing miracles through his ministry, but he didn't believe in boasting about it himself. Do you remember the letters he wrote to the Corinthians? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he talks about the fact that um, uh, he's, he, he, he's got nothing to boast about that, uh, that is, is, is uh, um, brilliant because God has called him to this. It's not something that he's done. When I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, he says, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I've got to do it. God has called me to do it. So it's nothing to be proud about. It's just something that God is working through me in all my weakness. I'm the chief of sinners, he says in another place to Timothy, doesn't he? And Paul is not trying to build himself up in any kind of way whatsoever. You turn to 2 Corinthians, and you find that the Corinthians have started listening to all sorts of super preachers with flashing eyes and uh, 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 beautiful profiles who come in you know, to, to, to preach and convert people, and their message is just slightly off. But people would rather listen to those people than they would listen to Paul. And Paul is saying, look, they do a lot of boasting about themselves and what they do. I could boast if I did. And he talks about some of the things that he's been involved with. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day. All that, all that sort of stuff. And he said, I'm foolish. I'm daft. I, I could go on talking about that. I'd be daft. I, that's boastful. And he says instead, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And so he talks about the things that have happened to him that make him look like a bit of an idiot, really. Somebody who's a bit of a failure. Somebody who's not doing too much. And he's just saying, but God has given me this ministry and I will go on. So the picture you get from these verses is not of somebody who's trying to make himself big and important and solid, but who's trying to say something about message, not about himself. Here's the third possibility, and I think this is the right one. Is he worried that they might think his prayer is just for the Jews and doesn't apply to them? I think that's what's going on here. Because if you look on into that uh, prayer, he's going for them. It's a fantastic prayer. We'll have a look at it next week uh, in detail. I kneel before the Father, verse 14, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth is it name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And what all of that means, we'll have a look at that. I want you to know uh, and to have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Well, you can imagine some pagans or previously pagan Christians who'd just been converted five minutes reading out and thinking, hey, that must be good to be Jewish because all of those things must happen to them. They are God's pro promised uh, chosen people after all, uh, but that probably doesn't apply to us. I mean, that you may be filled with a measure of all the fullness of God. Oh, that's a great prayer for a Jew to hear, but it's got nothing to do with me. And Paul wants to make it absolutely clear through what he says about himself and his own ministry, before he gets to this prayer, this is about everybody. We all belong here. And so, uh, he's already said a bit about this right enough. Oh, what are we doing with that now? Come on. Uh, yeah, that's what I want. Uh, he's already said, and you might have seen this slide actually, the, the first uh, talk I gave in this series once again, 
that uh, there are the same kinds of privilege for Jews and Gentiles. But he's worried still that they might not have got it. In chapter 1, he said the Jews were predestined, chosen. Now they hope in Christ. And Jewish Christians are living to the praise of his glory. That's fantastic. Gentiles, though, heard and believed. They were marked with a seal by God himself. They were given the Holy Spirit as a down payment in their own lives. And now they live to the praise of his glory. Different words, same experience. But just in case anybody amongst those Ephesian non-Jewish Christians was thinking, yeah, but I'm still a second rater. I didn't happen to be born into a Jewish family. Paul wants to make it absolutely clear. We all stand on the same ground. We all have the same privileges. And he talks about the privileges that have been given to him for his ministry. There are four of those, and we'll just rattle back those quite quickly uh, this evening. Because I think all four of those apply to us. Maybe not in the same way. You might not be the Apostle Paul. Uh, you're probably not the Apostle Paul. It'd be strange if you were. But, uh, you know, you may not have the same job to do for the kingdom of God. What he did was absolutely foundational uh, 2,000 years ago. You and I don't have the same role here in Paynton in, in 2022. But there are some things that are true about him and his experience that are true about every Christian. And that, I think, is why he details the kinds of things that he talks about. Now, the first of those privileges, the basic one on which everything else rests, is the privilege, privilege of selection. You have been chosen by God through no, no good thing about you at all. It didn't depend on your spiritual brilliance. It didn't depend on your moral life. It didn't depend on your understanding of, of Scripture. It didn't depend on your 50-year unblemished church-going record or anything like that. God simply chose you. Why did he choose you? Why you and not somebody else? That's the first privilege, the privilege of selection. And Paul talks about that. We'll see that in a moment. The second thing is the privilege of seeing. Where Paul says, you know, all of these things uh, have never been obvious until now. People haven't known what was going on down through the ages. This was not made known, he says in verse 5, to men in other generations. As it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And what we've got, we've got the job of sharing with you so that everybody can see what we've seen. The privilege of understanding what God has made happen. Third thing seems to be is the privilege of serving. And he talks about the job that God has given him. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. That means the way that God is working it all out through history so that people can understand what's going on, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, but now can be seen, he says, not only by men, but also by angels, by principalities and powers in heavenly places. Fantastic. And then there's the fourth one. And the fourth is the privilege of suffering. And he ends the whole thing by saying, well, listen, if all of this is true, you shouldn't be daunted by the fact that I'm getting thrown into prison quite so often. You shouldn't be worried about the fact that I get mistreated because these sufferings are for you and they are for your glory. And just as God has picked you up as weak people who have got nothing to recommend you, so he's picked up me. And he's not given me an easy life. It's a tough one, but he's given me immeasurable privileges. And in suffering, I'm going the way my mind went. And that is a fantastic privilege too. So as we go through 2022, we're going to encounter these privileges in our daily life again and again. And it's not a bad idea on January the 2nd to be reminded of them. 
Paul has four privileges, so do, so do we here in 2022. Okay, let's look at those four. First of all, there's the privilege of selection, being chosen by God. And Paul makes it very clear what, what I've pressed the wrong button again, sorry about that, what that this doesn't depend on. First of all, it didn't depend on his understanding. Do you see verse 3? Um, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already opened briefly. It had to be shown to him by God. He'd never worked it through on his own. He could have been sitting there for years, poring over the scriptures, trying to make sense of it, but suddenly God made him see. It took a bright light on the road to Damascus, didn't it? And then an awful lot of thinking and trips down to Mount Sinai and all sorts of things. But gradually, God's revelation dawned upon him and it changed his life. A bit like John Wesley that we're speaking about this morning. There was nothing wrong with John Wesley's Bible knowledge. There was nothing wrong with John Wesley's church uh, record. Even while he was at college um, in Oxford, his, his uh, brother and he and some other young, serious young men had been ridiculed. Other students who thought it was okay to go to church for half an hour a week, but to, to practice a spiritual method that some of these guys did, but made them Methodists, and that was a bad idea. And so he was used to putting himself through all sorts of spiritual contortions, trying to get right with God. But that didn't happen until one night in London at a meeting where somebody was reading not even Romans, but just the preface to a book about Romans. God suddenly broke through and he felt his heart strangely warmed. That's the privilege of seeing, suddenly realizing this is not just theological theory. This is not just nice fairy stories or Bible. This is me and God and a relationship. And it's happening to me right now. I belong to Jesus and he belongs to me. It didn't depend on his understanding. It didn't depend on his achievements. And that's uh, where verse 7 comes in. I became a servant of this gospel, a gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. It was only through what God did in me, not what I did for God, that I had the right uh, to have this privilege. And third, it didn't depend on his importance. That's verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me. God said, here you are. You know, it's, got, it's nothing that you've achieved. That's not because you're important. You're less than the least of all God's people. Nonetheless, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to use you. And you often find, don't you, that the Christians who achieve most for the kingdom are those who think little of themselves. I won't say least of themselves because it is possible to be so, so uh, self uh, well, I don't know what the word is I'm, I'm looking for, but you can be so convinced of your own worthlessness that you can't do anything for God. And God doesn't intend that. He doesn't intend you to think that you were a mistake and somehow in the way that he created you. No, there is a purpose and there's a value for your life. You just might not think it's very much. But when you, you, you're in that situation, God can pick you up and do bigger things with you than he can through somebody. Here I am, Lord, full of gifts, full of abilities. Now, where do you want me to start? How shall I start you now? You know, people like that tend to start out, burn brightly for a while and fade away. But the small people who use the little bit they've got just to faithfully keep on serving Jesus. They're the people like the boy that brought the five loaves and two fishes. Very, very little. But the master can multiply it and make it much, much bigger. So it didn't depend on his understanding, his achievements, or his importance. It simply depended on a free gift from God. Some of the early members of the Salvation Army back in the 19th century. I've just been reading a little bit about what it was like in Exeter, and I mustn't get distracted onto telling you stories about that, but there's a fantastic 
number of stories that can be told about the opposition just up the road from here in the city of Exeter that the Salvation Army faced when they, they, they started. There was the, the captain who was singing a song in the open air when the police came up and demanded that he stop singing. And he wouldn't stop singing, he was just praising God. And a mob got hold of him and wanted to throw him over the ex-bridges into the river. He only just escaped by being taken off to prison instead. And it was all like that in those days. If you ever get to go to the extra citadel of the Salvation Army, you'll see their original banner there, spattered with 19th century eggshells, tar, soot, ripped, torn, uh, and burned around the edges. And you begin to realize what these Christians had to go through to do the work they were doing amongst the poor. It, 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 brewers who didn't like them, they were, they were the ones who were losing profit as a result of people becoming Christians. And the Salvationists stuck to their job, not just in Exeter, but all over the place. And of course, they were a musical bunch as well. In 1876 in America, they published a songbook called The Heavenly Choir. And there were lots of hymns in there that were Salvationist uh, standards in the early days. And we don't know who's, who wrote some of them. There's one in particular I was thinking about when I was thinking about this point here. And uh, it goes a bit like this. Lord Jesus, my Savior, how vast thy love to me. I'll bathe in its full ocean to all eternity. And wending on to glory, this all my song shall be. I was a guilty sinner. Jesus died for me. And it goes on in the second verse. O Calvary, O Calvary, her thorn crown and spear, there doth thy love, Lord Jesus, in bleeding wounds appear. O depths of grace and mercy, to those dear wounds I flee. I was a guilty sinner, but Jesus died for me. That's what a communion service is all about, is it? That's what the bread and the wine tells us. We have no right to be here. We have no merit in ourselves that would give us any kind of place before God in his, his service. But the privilege of selection means that God in his mercy has reached out and put his hand on us and drawn us to himself. It's a fantastic thing and no wonder Paul wanted to share it with everybody. Then there's the privilege of seeing. It's dawned upon us. We've been chosen by God and, and God has opened those blind eyes so that we can see. Once I was blind, now I see. And the, the message translation of uh, some of these verses goes like this. I got the outside story on this from God himself. None of our ancestors understood this. Only in our time has it been made clear by God's spirit through his holy apostles and prophets of this new order. And our job, if we have seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ, We've seen the love of God in the cross. We've seen the power of God in the resurrection and experienced it in our own lives. Our job is to tell everybody about it. It won't be easy because the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe. And sometimes we have to battle again and again, as Paul did himself, let's face it, to make sure that people are able to understand, just catch a glimpse of the glory and the wonder of the gospel. But if we have the privilege of seeing, we need to thank God for that and we need to point other people in the same direction. And the third thing is the privilege of serving. Paul was sent out by God as a result of uh, what uh, had happened to him that transformed him on the road to Damascus. And uh, he was given a job to do that. He, he just could not believe to tell the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Like we were saying this morning, the gospel is not something you can sum up in just four spiritual laws, four things God wants you to know or something like that. That's a great starting point. But that's only the starting point. And the gospel goes on, having ramifications in every area of your life. And so the unsearchable riches that are there in God's good news are something we need to unpack for other people around us. And uh, this lady was somebody with whom I once spent a very nerve-wracking week. 
Her name is Rebecca Manley Pippert, and she wrote a book which became very famous in the 1980s called Out of the Salt Shaker, and it's still being produced because it's one of the best books about how to share your faith, I think, that's been written in the 20th century. Uh, Sarah, it was a nerve-wracking week because you cannot work with Becky. When you're sharing a talk with her, she just takes over. And we tried to work together. This was one of the earliest spring harvests. And she and I had to do a seminar on personal evangelism together in front of 1,000 to 2,000 people, would you believe? And uh, we tried to get her to answer all sorts of letters before she came across the Atlantic about how she was to divide up the talks. And we didn't get an answer. And when she got there, she said, oh, just, I'm just going to do bits from my book. That's what I do. She said, no, can, can you just blend it together so that it fits in with what I'm saying and, and stuff? And she said, well, I'm, I'll do it. I'll try. Yeah, okay. And uh, we said, you know, can we make sure that um, you get this length of time, so you, you lead on one seminar and then I'll lead on the other, and uh, we'll both do bits of both, but you'll be speaking more on that one. She said, well, if I remember, I'll do that. But once Becky starts, it's just like a, a motor running. She just starts quoting bits of her book, and it just goes on and on. And there are times when I'm sitting there in front of the 2,000 people thinking, she's left me five minutes of this session. She's left me four minutes of this session. It's three minutes long enough to close in prayer. <laughs> and she was just incredible. And you, could, you couldn't derail her at all. But she's a great woman, and it's a very funny book. And one of the things that struck me out of, of, of that book, the quotation of, of, uh, I've thought about many times, is that she said, initially as a Christian, she hated doing evangelism. There was a part of me, she said, that secretly felt evangelism was something you shouldn't do to your dog, let alone a friend. <laughs> and if you're honest, most of us have felt like that at some time. Do I really have to do that? Why can't I just merge with the scenery? You know, take off the uniform for five minutes. Why do I have to be on duty like that? It doesn't come naturally to me. I'm not a salesman. I'm not good at words and arguments and things like that. Do I have to? But, you know, we don't need to get stressed about it. Because it's God that's going to supply the power. Um, not, 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 not us. And although we should make sure that we, 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 we know what we're talking about and what the arguments are and look at both sides of the issues and things like that, nonetheless, God can use the simplest words to bring people to himself in ways that they'd never believe. I remember one of the early leaders of the Navigators in America uh, t telling me that uh, he'd done some work uh, on a, a university student who'd just become a Christian. And uh, he worked with him for about three months to teach him how to present his faith in a compelling way. He said, now, who do you want to come and share your faith with first? And he mentioned a friend who lived across the, 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 the passageway from him in that student residence. He said, okay, for three months we're going to study and get this all together. Then we're going to go across the corridor, knock on his door, and you're going to give him the perfect presentation of the gospel. And so they did. And when uh, the navigators thought he was ready, he said, okay, I think we'll go and do this now. Oh, are you sure? Are you sure? Yep, yep, yep. Let's go and do it. Let's have a quick pray, and then we'll just go across and talk to your friend. And so... Um, they, they, they went across the corridor and very timidly he knocked on the door and uh, the, the, the guy opened the door. And he said, yeah, what do you want? And he said, uh, um, I've got something to tell you that I've never shared with you before. And it all came out back to front and wrong. Oh, dear, the navigator was thinking, Lord, beam me up now. Get me out of here, please. And you know what? Um, he, he just ran out of ideas completely and, and said, uh, so, uh, so, uh, so, um, so would you like to become a Christian? And the navigator thought, oh, goodness, it's so embarrassing. And to his surprise, he heard the other student saying, yeah, yeah, I would. Now, what? What's going on here, Lord? And uh, later on, he said, well, what was it that convinced you? And the new Christian said, well, he was so sincere. 
I mean, what he said was a load of rubbish. It made no sense whatsoever. But I could see something had happened to him that really, really altered him. And I just wanted some of that for myself. And so I thought, wow, you know, it's not making sense to me, but presumably the American guy standing behind could make sense of it. <laughs> and uh, let's, 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 let's just probe this and see what happens. And if it's that important to him, I want to be part of this as well. And so God can use people in the strangest way. I am... I mustn't tell too many stories because we want to finish this. But I remember once when I was leading an operation mobilization team in Swindon, going around knocking on people's doors. There was a guy on my team uh, who was assigned to my, I think it was eight people I had. And I thought, oh, this guy's a real lightweight. He's not going to be much use. His name was Keith. He came from Leicester. And he, he stuttered all the time, you know. He, he, he just couldn't put a sentence together. Not because of a stutter, but just because he was super nervous. He said, Keith, would you like a cup of tea? He'd go, and blush deep red. Yes, no, and say, oh, well, would you prefer coffee? Coffee. And he couldn't get sense out of him. I thought, this guy is going to defend Christian faith on the doorsteps of Swindon? No chance. But uh, we sent him out on the first day anyway. And when they all came back in again, I'd covered about a street and a half, got lots of rejections and one or two interesting chats. Most of them had done the same. Keith and the guy he'd gone out with had gone to three houses. And in every single one, he'd been invited in for a cup of coffee and a long discussion. I thought, this is, this is weird, but the grace of God is infinite. That's wonderful. Um, let's send him out with somebody different the next day. Do you know what? The same thing happened. And so after three days of this, I thought, I want to find out what's going on here. So we decided to go out with Keith myself. And I'm, I'm really nervous. Uh, I'm going out with the leader of the team, and if I get anything wrong here, oh my goodness, I'm on the next bus, bus to Alexa. And uh, uh, we went to the first house, and I pressed the bell and said, yeah, yeah, you, you talk to them, John, you talk to them. Said, nope, nope, I want to hear what you do, Keith. On you carry, carry on. Said, oh, oh, oh. So a woman came to the door. You could hear a crying child inside. She was wiping her hands on an apron. Obviously, it was not a good time to disturb her. And she said, yes, what is it? And I will always remember Keith's words as long as I live. It just... Uh, uh, do you know you're going to L, love? Oh. <laughs> it was disaster. And the woman looked at him and said, no, I didn't. Do you want to come in and talk about it? God, this is not fair. <laughs> but it's amazing, isn't it? God can use willingness to serve him more than ability sometimes. And uh, we, we shouldn't be embarrassed about sharing our faith. We should just let it come naturally and, and take the chances that God gives us when there are real chances, we don't have to force them. But when those opportunities arise, and we should be praying that they will arise, then we take those chances and God works through it. Um, this is the uh, uh, Roman oikonomos. Now, the word oikonomia is one that comes up twice in this passage. Um, uh, once further on down, I've, I've mentioned it already, uh, it says Paul's job in verse 9 is to make plain to everyone the oikonomia of the mystery. Uh, which means the way that God works out this mystery that he's working uh, out through Jesus um, and, and makes it plain to everybody in the world. They, and so what Paul is doing is explaining how God's at work there. But at the top of the chapter, um, in verse 2, he says, Surely you have heard about the oikonomia of God's grace that was given to me and uh, for you. And uh, so he's talking about himself as a steward. And a steward is somebody who doesn't own the house, doesn't own the property, but is responsible for what he does with it. He's accountable to a master. The master is the one who owns everything, but the oikonomos is the one who's trusted 
to sort out the household, to make sure the slaves are doing their jobs, to make sure the meals are on the table and the children of the master are being educated and the, the house is being well dusted and all the rest of it. He's in charge of everything. And the oikonomos is the household manager. And Paul says, this oikonomia has been given to me. <laughs> this is the way that God does it. He puts ordinary people in charge of supernatural resources. They don't own them. They're just there to use them for the master. But that's what it's all about. The privilege of serving. And he says, gives us four reasons to think why it's a privilege. Very, very quickly. First of all, it's a privilege because of who gave it. That, I think, is verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me the working of his power. God gave me this thing. I cannot disregard it. I cannot duck out of it. It's a gift that God gave me, and it's a tremendous privilege. If I don't tell people, there are some that may never be reached. And so I've got to use my contacts and my relationship with people to present the gospel in a way that people can understand and respond to. Because of who gave it to me. It's a privilege, too, because of who's watching. Verse 10 is, is interesting, isn't it? To make plain to everyone, it says in verse 9, the administration of this mystery, which was for ages ago, was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to everybody in the world. No, he doesn't say that. He says something bigger than that. God's intent was that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should become obvious to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, when you share your faith, with somebody it's not just two people having a cup of coffee in costa it's not just somebody standing on at the bus stop with somebody else explaining a few verses from the bible it's shifting supernatural dimensions and angels and evil powers in heavenly places are looking on and watching a whole spiritual battle taking place through you not that your power is anything there, but the power of God is being channeled through you, piercing through the blindness in somebody else's heart and mind. And so it's a privilege because of who's watching. You are showing through the way that you operate as part of Christ's church what God's wisdom in saving people and bringing them together as one body is all about. Third, it's a privilege because of what it does. Sorry, I've only got three of these, actually. It's a privilege because of what he does, and that's verse 12. I missed out the fourth one, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it out there. So verse 12, remember that at that time, no, hang on, I'm in chapter 2 there, that's not good. Verse 12, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Because Jesus has given us this relationship with God, because we are one family in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles together, because this applies to everyone who is a Christian, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. And what will convince people in the end will not be our clever arguments, but the fact that we have a relationship with God which is palpable and real, which obviously is the very backbone and centre of our lives. I remember when I started out as an evangelist with Youth for Christ years ago, my first boss, Philip Vogel, used to say, a man with an, experience, uh, with an argument can never overcome a man with an experience. And that's the way it is. If you know Jesus, you cannot be knocked over. They can deride you, they can laugh at you, they can reject you, but they cannot knock you over because what you've got is something that they haven't. Finally, there's this, the privilege of suffering. This is the wall of Paviat Prison in Warsaw. During the Second World War, it was a desolate place. It's where the prisoners of the Gestapo went, and many of them died as a result. After the war, it was where the enemies of the communists were sent. 
And there are lots of things written on the walls there by people who had just basically lost hope in life. Many of them were Polish patriots. And I remember once reading something and translating it out of Polish and thinking, wow, that is powerful. What it said was this. To live for Poland is difficult. To die for Poland is more difficult. But the most difficult thing of all is to suffer for Poland. I thought, yeah, that says something about the Christian life, doesn't it? To live for God, that's hard enough. To die for God, that's even harder. But to suffer for him, to be alive and yet live in the midst of suffering, that is tough. And yet suffering is part of the package. And the apostle Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 says Christians who are just about to go into a period of intense suffering rejoice because you participate in the sufferings of Christ. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And sometimes we worry about the suffering that God could bring into our lives if we stand up, put our heads above the parapet, are counted for heaven. And yet that, that uh, suffering is a source of immense blessing. The Apostle Paul, writing at around about the same time as he wrote Ephesians to the Colossians, says this, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. It's as if there is more suffering to come for Jesus. And he can't take it physically or himself anymore because he's not here. So who's going to fill up those sufferings? His church. If you follow a crucified master, don't expect the world to treat you any better than they treated him. But rejoice because you're counted worthy to suffer for the Lord Jesus. And do you remember when we were talking about Galatians, we looked at this verse. From now on, Paul ends the, the letter, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So selection, seeing, and serving, three dimensions of the privilege you've got. But there's a fourth one too. And if we're ready for that, the privilege of suffering, then God can really take us and use our lives. And we take hands off them for ourselves and say, it's over to you. You do whatever you want with me. At that point, God's power can really start kicking in and doing something with us. And that was what Paul wanted people to hear before he got onto the sentence he really wanted to say. Let's just pray together, shall we? Father, this is tough and challenging stuff, but we know the Apostle Paul lived it out and made an immense difference in the world, which is still being talked about today as a result of that. Give us the same determination to see your work in us fulfilled. Help us realize the privilege of being selected by you, not deserving it in any way. We were just guilty sinners, but Jesus died for us. Help us understand the privilege of seeing things to which the rest of the world around us is blind and helping them lovingly bit by bit to gain just a glimpse of the fantastic possibilities and the untold riches of Christ. Help us to see serving you as a privilege too, of being identified with you in a world which is increasingly hostile to Christians and Christian claims. Help us realize that if you've left us here for such a time as this, it's because you've trusted us with something very special and we mustn't back away from the challenge you've brought into our lives. And help us too to be ready for the privilege of suffering, for taking on ourselves 
whatever shame, whatever dishonor, whatever loss, whatever cost, you intend us to pay. Here we are, Lord. Use us for your kingdom's sake. Amen.